Trent. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Hello, everyone. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode. We've got one. It's here. It's an episode. We, we just missed Memorial Day. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited about what you're going to teach me. Yeah? Yeah. What is it? I don't know, but apparently it's really long. Because <laughs> all you keep telling me is, wow, this is really long. So you, you can turn on the news and you can see that uh, the, the leadership of Venezuela is uh, uh, disputed. Uh, the opposition has the support of the U.S. government and commercial media in installing their own chosen uh, uh, leader. Okay. I should point out I'm talking about 2002. These are the events we're talking about in our episode. The, the 2002 oh. failed coup in Venezuela. Okay. It might sound familiar, yes, but yeah. 2002 is where I'm setting the stage. Okay. Okay, we're going to take it back. Take it back. Take it back a bit. Take it back to when I was... You were 14. I was 14! Because the the meat of this episode is set after your birthday. I was 14! (laughs) Probably had no idea any of this was happening. I wasn't. I was 13. Yeah, you little baby. (laughs) You little baby boy. So in order to depose the president, we have to talk about who the president was. And that is one Hugo Chavez. They don't make him like that anymore. No. Hugo Chavez is a -a one-of-a-kind guy. He was elected president of Venezuela in 1998, ushering in what he called the Bolivarian Revolution. Oh, anytime we talk about revolutions, a lot of times, if you're calling it that yourself, feels like it doesn't go great. Just look at Thomas Jefferson and the mess he made. (laughs) Uh, A lot of other people were calling it that, too. (laughs) It's like, like, okay, I'm going to declare that I'm really cool. I'm going to declare revolution. Like, you got to have other people on board. That darn John Lennon, when will he learn? The Bolivarian Revolution was named for Simón Bolivar, the uh, Venezuelan revolutionary who won the independence of Venezuela. Okay. But that's not all. He also liberated Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Panama from Spanish rule. Okay, cool. Busy guy. Good good revolutions there. (laughs) He is a symbol of breaking away from imperialism, from from foreign domination. I can get behind that. He's a symbol of a lot of things for a lot of people, but that's what Chavez was going for. That that facet of this multifaceted guy. So as we've discussed in earlier episodes, uh, the the 80s and 90s were the height of global neoliberalism, the, the fundamentalist belief in markets, privatization, and deregulation. Mm-hmm. Neoliberalism caused steep inequality in Venezuela as the ownership class uh, reaped all the rewards of the the nation's thriving oil industry. Okay. Meanwhile, poverty rates exploded. Okay, we need a revolution. I get it. Incredibly stark divisions between the haves and have-nots in in 90s Venezuela. Uh, Every Venezuelan president in the 1990s campaigned on getting rid of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, then immediately caved to them upon taking office. Ooh. So food and fuel subsidies were cut. State assets were privatized. Essentially, the poor got poorer. Yep. You've got this line of people standing up to say, no more. This cannot continue. And then they get faced with actually being in office and more. It continues. Yeah. So that brings us to Chavez's 1998 platform. 
stop selling off chunks of the state oil company and instead review concessions given to foreign oil companies and redistribute the oil wealth. Mm-hmm. Set an economic plan independent of the United States, the IMF, the World Bank, and their allied interests. Increase the minimum wage, create an unemployment stipend, increase uh, education spending, and above all, fix the Venezuelan government by making a new one. Write a new constitution. Okay. He won by 16% of the vote. Okay. He didn't get 16%. That was his margin. Okay. He got 16% more than the guy in number two. Yeah. Like, look at uh, the, the history of U.S. elections. That's happened five times. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And so he delivered on his number one promise, a new constitution. So in 1999, uh, he, he unveiled this new constitution that provided for five branches of government. Okay. The executive, legislative, judicial, electoral, and the citizens branch. Oh. The Constitution also had protection of civil rights, including right, rights of expression, assembly, uh, the right to health care, the right to education, employment, and the right to housing. Ooh, I can get behind this. Uh, it established a means of providing health care free at the point of service to all Venezuelans, and it would be unconstitutional to ever privatize it. Oh, I am so behind this <laughs> Uh, Article 21 of the 99 Constitution guaranteed that all persons were equal before the law, uh, protection from discrimination, and also required the government to take affirmative measures to benefit any marginalized group. Mm -hmm. In Article 118, it's a big constitution. There's a lot. There are hundreds of articles in this constitution. There's at least 118. Pretty sure it goes into the 300s. Dang. But Article 118 says, quote, The right of workers and the community to develop associations of social and participative nature such as cooperatives, savings funds, mutual funds, and other forms of association is recognized. These associations may develop any kind of economic activities in accordance with the law. The law shall recognize the specificity of these organizations, especially those relating the cooperative, the associated work, and the generation of collective Benefits. The state shall promote and protect these associations destined to improve the popular economic alternative. Technically, it said all that in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed and understand why it took you so long to write this episode because you had to translate it. Yep. All, all me. All by hand. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. yeah you remember that much of your high school Spanish <laughs> classes. <laughs> but the, the point is we see enshrined in the constitution the right to form uh workers co-ops alternative forms of business what's not protected by uh name in the constitution is large corporations foreign corporations yeah the bolivarian revolution is a, a explicit form of socialism or at least a bridge toward enacting socialism take back the joke i tried to make earlier before i knew what was going on (laughs) declare your revolution (laughs) the constitution was uh approved by a national referendum approved by 71 percent of the vote very popular constitution it's amazing people like socialism huh Another thing in these hundreds of articles was uh, calling for a new presidential election because it's a new government. It only makes sense. So Chavez won that one with a margin of over 22% of the vote. Dang! So in office, Hugo Chavez used this electoral mandate, this 
huge show of popular support to fulfill his further promises Mm -hmm. and with a a handmade government structure to help him do that. Uh, So he did what his predecessors failed to do and told the IMF to go pound sand. Pound that sand. We don't need any of your grants, uh, so you can't tell us to privatize our healthcare industry. We kind of just did a whole thing about that. He struck a deal with Fidel Castro to exchange subsidized oil for Cuban doctors to improve public health. He passed 49 laws in his first year to enact all these grander plans, deliver on all these larger promises. Uh, Lots of that had to do with land reform, like granting residents of the barrios the title to the land they lived on, taking it back from their absentee do-nothing landlords. Yeah. Also uh, uh, making education free, including universities. Ah, I get behind this a lot. (laughs) Inflation fell to its lowest rate in 15 years. Growth held steady. And Chavez became a loud part of OPEC, uh, helping control oil production to increase Venezuela's revenues. Okay. To, you know, pay for all this. It it is an oil-rich nation that puts pretty much all its eggs in that one basket. Yeah. Not everybody was down with all this. Well, yeah, that happens. Obviously, the wealthy aren't a big fan of redistribution of that wealth, and they are very powerful. Yeah, they're usually the ones that have issues. Also, those 49 laws were passed by decree. He just said they are the law now. Yeah. This is what happened after the National Assembly, the, the legislature of Venezuela, voted to let him issue decrees for a year. Ah. So it was kind of with legislative authority, even though the legislature didn't specifically vote on any of the 49. Yeah. Uh, They're like, yeah, go ahead and do that. It's it's not a good look. No, I guess not. (laughs) Especially when dictators are in living memory, not only in Venezuela, but, you know, all of their neighbors. Yeah. I mean, the, the potential for corruption is there, and the fact that Chavez's first play at becoming uh, uh, the president of Venezuela was his own failed coup in 1992. Uh, yeah. 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 So the established structures that were being threatened saw an opportunity as the public got nervous, and they started making plans for a Chavez-free future. In February 2002, military officers joined an anti-Chavez rally calling for his resignation, complaining that his policies would antagonize the United States. And another of their complaints was that the military should only be used for defense, not distributing food and vaccines to the poor. That's not their job. Damn those poor people. We shouldn't have to interact with you. Uh, the Washington Post later reported that the, the officers speaking at that rally received $100,000 each from anonymous Miami bank accounts for their speeches. Ah. Uh, the state oil company, uh, PDVSA, uh, was autonomous. It, it operated, it, it was state owned, but it operated independently from the state. Okay. Right? Like, just because Chavez is president doesn't mean he's the boss of the oil. Okay. Less than 40% of its revenue even went to the state. It was 70-something in the late 80s, by the way. Oh. But PDVSA was was the biggest source of opposition power. Keeping the lights on depended on oil production. Yeah. 
it's very the end of Dune, you know? If, if you can stop the flow, you are in control. I was thinking Dune when you're talking <laughs> about him not being, like, the president of oil. I'm just, the me- I, like, my brain went to, like, some type of, like, Dune costume of, like, sure. I control the oil. <laughs> so Chavez forced the president of the oil company out and many board members along with him claiming that they were endangering his plans and trying to further privatize the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, He called for a leadership election in CTV, the largest federation of trade unions in the country. CTV did not appreciate this. I'm I'm sure the TV station was like, what the hell? That's our abbreviation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The Canadian television. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, you might think that all of this, you know, power to the people... Uh, uh, collective ownership uh, would be pretty popular in the labor movement. Yeah. CTV isn't that kind of, of uh, uh, union. I mean, the, the fact that having its members vote on leaders was a threat to them should say that it's not that kind of union. Yeah. I think if your leaders aren't selected by the membership, then you're not really a union at all. But that's that's personal preference, I guess. Yeah. So CTV leaders join with uh, Fedecomeras, the National Chamber of Commerce, to plan a general strike. Also, if your labor union is joining forces with management, as represented by a Chamber of Commerce, you're also not a real labor union. But that's editorializing again. (laughs) Sorry, but your interests are diametrically opposed. Yep. So the media saw itself as a protector of democracy. uh, And Chavez saw it as an impediment to the Bolivarian Revolution. They did not like each other at all. In fact, Chavez got a lot of uh, uh, credit, a lot of fame and notoriety from thumbing his nose at the media yeah, and antagonizing private media. Uh, he, he threatened to revoke broadcast licenses. He called out journalists by name if he didn't like what they were doing. Uh, the private media was also owned by a few wealthy families with their own interests against redistributive policy. Yeah. So the fact a coup was in the works was no secret at all. Uh, The Miami Herald and San Francisco Examiner reported on the likelihood of coup plans starting in December 2001. Just for some American media examples. Uh, After it happened, Newsweek said that it had been in the works for two years. Which would take us back to April 2000. Yeah. Five months before... uh, uh, The April coup attempt, Newsweek also ran a piece quoting opposition members alleging Chavez was clinically insane and the uh, uh, judiciary had a responsibility to remove him from power. Uh Uh-huh. So uh, I think it's fair to say Newsweek was a a bit of a fair-weather fan of the Chavez regime. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Charles Shapiro, U.S. ambassador during the coup attempt, said that his office was aware of it before he even got the job. Oh, boy. During the coup, a plotter said to the TV news that they had been working on it for nine months. The, the, the timeline for when pen met paper, if anyone was dumb enough to actually write things down, just to use a turn of phrase, it's unclear. But there was planning. Yeah. Everybody agrees there was planning. Not everyone agrees who was involved, especially when trying to defend themselves against charges. Yeah. But there was planning. Uh, The coup plotters were reportedly bankrolled by the owner of uh, the television network, Venevision, 
and meetings were held in Venevision offices. Oh. Chavez claimed publicly and often that the coup had United States support, even participation. We do not have the smoking gun of a codenamed CIA operation. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday we will when uh, documents de- get declassified. Maybe it's because there wasn't one. I don't know. Yeah. But here's some stuff we do know. This ain't going to look good for the U.S., is it? No. No, it's no. not. Uh- <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Never does. Never does. Uh, Chavez decried U.S. airstrikes killing civilians in Afghanistan, even sharing pictures uh, on his his regular broadcasts on, on Venezuelan state media. He liked the state media. He could go on anytime he wanted. And he refused to make the requested apology, which would uh, which the United States asked him to do, including uh, denouncing everyone the Bush administration had ever called a terrorist. That would include his best friend, Fidel Castro. Ah. It's not going to do that. No, probably not. Uh, Chavez considered joining an oil embargo, protesting American support of the apartheid state of Israel, but decided against it for fear of U.S. reprisal. Did not go in on that embargo. Yeah. The United States government did warn Chavez that they knew about an imminent coup, but provided him fewer details than they had. Hmm. So, like, the State Department knew... Some some names, some dates, had some ideas of plans, but then they called him up to say, hey, dude, something's coming. Watch out. We're not going to tell you what, though. <laughs> uh, State Department officials, including Ambassador Shapiro, met with opposition leaders and plotters and discussed the coup in advance. Now, these U.S. officials insist they always said they did not offer support, but all the specific quotes have this air of plausible deniability. Mm. Like, there's this... Okay, I, I believe that you said those words, but what else did you say? Why did it take you a two-hour meeting to give that warning? Yeah. Uh, if you're conspiracy-minded, it's a bit fishy. Uh, the CTV, that labor union, or Federation of Labor Unions, was- Not Canadian television. Not Canadian television. Was funded by some large grants in 2002 and 2003 from the National Endowment for Democracy a project of the United States State Department. Uh-huh. Uh, Central plotter Rear Admiral Carlos Molina said, quote, We felt we were acting with U.S. support. The U.S. has not let us down yet. Oh, dang! <laughs> felt is not necessarily a statement of fact. No. U.K. newspaper The Guardian reports uh, plotters received intelligence from U.S. naval ships stationed in the Caribbean. Their sister paper, The Observer, reported that the coup was greenlit and sanctioned by Elliot Abrams, who was serving uh, under the job title Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Democracy, Human Rights, and International Operations. Mm. Darlin, have you heard of Elliot Abrams? No. Okay. Should I have? Elliot Abrams is, if you were to ask me today, the most evil person working in the American government. So I probably should know who he is. <laughs> we're we're going to have a quick sidebar on the government career of one Elliot Abrams. He started in the Reagan administration. Uh, on his, so he's kind of old now. He's pretty old. One of his first acts was to cover for Guatemalan dictator Rios Montt in his genocide campaign, Ooh. which is now known as the Silent Holocaust. On his first day, he defended the government of El Salvador and called anyone pointing out their horrific abuses communist sympathizers. 
Uh, El Salvador's military, which was funded and trained by the United States, uh, killed over 800 civilians in the El Mazote massacre. Again, like the day of or the day before Abrams got his job. Mm-hmm. If I were to go into detail in the horrific abuses that happened at El Mazote, this would have our biggest bummer warning in the history of the show. Oh, dang. It's something that I don't feel comfortable saying within the, like, sort of family-friendly yet conscious of reality history vein I like to keep us in. Okay. Wikipedia that one later. Uh, He said in 2001, when questioned, you know, looking back, do you have any regrets, blah, 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 that that sort of puff piece, uh, that U.S. policy in El Salvador was, quote, a fabulous achievement. That was his regret? No regrets whatsoever. Okay. He still stands by that as of another uh, 2019 quote, in case you thought he might have had a a change of heart in the last 18 years. No, I really didn't think he would. So uh, the, the Reagan administration in the early 80s had a problem, which is that they really wanted to fund a lot of Central and Latin American death squads, and Congress wouldn't always let them do it. Darn Congress! So Elliot Abrams had a plan to, to go to uh, the Sultanate of Brunei to, to get them to give some money to the Contras in Nicaragua. It almost worked. He got $10 million from them. But because of a typo in the uh, bank transfer details, it went to some other Swiss bank account. (laughs) No one knows who got that money and they have not come forward. Honestly, would you? No. (laughs) No, I would not. I would take that money and be like, see you fuckers about. So because that plan was a bust, we got the Iran-Contra affair, where uh, the U.S. was selling weapons to Iran, even though we publicly were very, very angry at the Ayatollah, Mm -hmm. just because that's how we get money to funnel to Nicaraguan death squads. Yeah. Uh, He lied to Congress about his involvement in Iran-Contra. They found out, and he pled guilty to two counts, two misdemeanor counts, of withholding information from Congress. His sentence was a $50 fine and 100 hours of community service. Uh Uh-huh. Now, one reason you might recognize the name uh, is that he made some... He got in the headlines earlier this year in February, or perhaps March, when uh, Representative uh, Omar uh, was questioning why Congress should believe anything he says when he has this conviction on his record. Mm-hmm. He did not like that very much. And and the hissy fit he threw in a congressional hearing ma- made some headlines. The footage got passed around a bit. I honestly can't keep track of all the hissy fits people throw <laughs> nowadays. And so, it's a daily occurrence. After that, he, he was pushed out of government service until uh, George W. Bush hired him as, again, special assistant to the president and senior director for democracy, human rights, and international operations. Yeah, I don't think he was very good at some of those. He got that job because it's a a position that does not require congressional approval. Ah. Ah. After uh, the events we're talking about today uh, came some other stuff in 2002, like the Iraq War. Elliot Abrams was a a central architect of that, which went great. Absolutely not a human rights disaster uh, that destabilized the world to this day or anything. No, no, of course not. 
Speaking of destabilizing things, in 2006, he implemented a plan to spark a Palestinian civil war so that the Palestinians that liked the Bush administration would, would come out on top. It didn't work. Instead, it is a root cause of a lot of the violence in Palestine that continues to this day. Yep. So if these allegations that the U.S. was uh, supporting and, and greenlit this coup are true, that's the guy who turned on the green light. That makes sense. An investigation from the United States Inspector General's office found, quote, while it is clear that uh, NEDs, DODs, and other U.S. assistance programs provided training, institution building, and other support to organizations and individuals understood to be actively involved in the events of April 11th through the 14th, we found no evidence that this support directly contributed or was intended to contribute to those events. So just because the National Endowment for Democracy, Department of Defense, and other U.S. programs absolutely did provide training, institution building, and other support to the people who we knew didn't like Chavez and wanted him out and were planning a coup, doesn't mean doesn't, we helped them plan no, a coup. No, doesn't mean anything. That is the official U.S. government line. Oh, goodness. Goodness. So with that, we're going to take a quick break and, and be back with what happened in Venezuela. Okay, I'm going to cuddle a dog for comfort. Welcome back. Hello. So we've set the stage. Hopefully that is enough context to tell the story I am here to tell. Okay. So what actually happened? What did happen? We're gonna we're gonna go day by day the events of of early, day by day. early to mid April two thousand two. Okay. Start. This has nothing to do with Godspell. No, no, no. no. Sorry. Uh, April fifth, PDVSA cuts production and anti Chavez employees shut down uh, two export terminals. Okay. Uh, to, you know, wake up the, the uh, opposition and, and shake up the, the administration. Show them we mean business. Uh, on April 6th, CTV and, and the Fed Commerce joined together to call for a 24-hour general strike on the 9th to support the striking PDVSA uh, anti-Chavez workers. April 7th, Chavez forces uh, board members who had been leading the protests out, as I already mentioned earlier. The mayor of Caracas asks the church to perform an exorcism on Hugo Chavez. Oh, well, that, that's a different turn. Just in case, you know, cover the basis. Why not? Why not? We can do it. We got the supplies. April 9th, strike day. The strike slows down oil production. Plenty of places are still open. The, the general strike is not as general as they were hoping. That puts the, the government and the opposition in a place where they go to war in the press over whether the strike was a success or not. Very newsies. So, uh, if if the strike really did shut down uh, uh, the country, then it shows that the people are against Chavez, that they are for getting rid of him and, and, and finding a new direction. If it didn't work, then they're, they're for it, and they see through this... this puppet act by wealthy interests to control Venezuela's future. Yeah. Uh, the print press joined the strike and no papers were printed. 
So nobody got their news from from uh, the Daily Paper. Uh-huh. TV press showed constant coverage of striking workers. While the government used its ability to insert Cardenas, mandatory broadcasts, into the feed, 30 times between the 8th and the 9th to show people going to work, having just an average day, a day like any other day. <laughs> Strike organizers announced that it's going to continue on into the 10th. It's now a 48-hour strike. Okay. Really ram it home. So, April 10th, many schools and businesses that were closed on the 9th reopen. Day two is a pretty clear failure. Day one, debatable. Day two, not much of a strike. Yeah. At least not the the kind that grinds the country to a halt that they were trying to sell it as. The media continued covering this now less effective strike, and the government continued interrupting with Cardenas. Of course, now the broadcasters were trying out a, a new policy. They were broadcasting simultaneously side by side. One half of the screen is showing all these striking workers, you know, just sitting in, grinding the the machinery of industry to a halt. The other side is showing the the government's side of the story. Yeah. Where it's it's all a sham. Everybody's happy. Working together to build a better Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Organizers announced that tomorrow's events, because we're now having daily events... Yeah. Is going to be a, a great big march on the PDVSA headquarters in order to cheer for and demand the return of, of those fired executives and board members. An army general reads a statement demanding Chavez's resignation, or else. He wrote that statement in a news anchor's living room. Ooh. A draft of the coup government's first planned decree is shown around to uh, this supportive... Uh, uh, expert, this public intellectual, he hated it, did not like it one bit, No, <laughs> said that if they go along with that decree, it will backfire and be an absolute disaster. Oh boy. So now we get to April 11th, the crisis before the coup. The march that was announced was to go from uh, Parque del Este, the East Park, this giant, just gigantic, big green space in Caracas, to the nearest office of PDVSA. Pretty short walk, all told. But that was not the organizer's real plan. Instead, they they were planning to announce on the route a spontaneous uh, uh, change of plans to instead march directly on the presidential residence seven miles away. (laughs) And it was a crowd, to be sure, between five and eight hundred thousand marchers. We're talking as much as 40% of the population of Caracas Uh were in this crowd. Mm -hmm. So a pro-Chavez anti-demonstration had already formed at the presidential residence, Miraflores, by the time they arrived, and there was the inevitable confrontation. Yeah. The supporters included a number of Bolivarian circles, uh, which were created uh, as part of the Bolivarian Revolution as grassroots groups dedicated to implementing the goals of the revolution. The plan is to use the power of government to create and cultivate people power, right? Yeah. The government will take care of things uh, at the national scale and and international scale and provide an environment for for all of you, you know, street-level organizers to to plant those seeds of the grassroots and, and implement true socialism. Yeah. 
They, they were supposed to take on the work of organizing their communities to, to fight for their own interests, their own betterment. Many circles were also trained in combat, sometimes in Cuba or by Colombian paramilitaries. They were armed. Ooh. So, yeah. So there's that. Uh, the police and the National Guard, who were loyal to the government, blocked nearly every path of entry toward the palace. Uh, they were firing tear gas canisters. They were shooting water cannons, doing what they could to keep the two demonstrations separate. Yeah. One path they did not b- block was the, the road uh, that went under Yaguno Overpass. That overpass was instead held by the Bolivarian circles. Shots ran out on both sides, with seven dead, uh, all told, on both sides, Ooh. as well as five uh, bystanders, and over 120 injured between the bullets, the tear gas, the trampling, everything all told. Yeah. Despite the presence of news cameras and thousands of, of potential eyewitnesses, there's too much scope, too much chaos to be sure how the shooting began, where it was directed, who has ultimate blame and responsibility. Also, the political implications of the answers to those questions make any involved party immediately untrustworthy. Yeah. You, you have to assume that anyone posing an answer has an agenda. Like, if you even go to the footage, there are documentaries that go to war over who's doctored what, uh, is that the correct timestamp, etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, both sides accuse the other of having snipers. The opposition has been additionally accused of having snipers fire on opposition demonstrators to spark outrage, sort of false flag style yeah. stuff. Uh, every confirmed shooter claims to have been acting in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, some wounded demonstrators were hit with the same ammunition used in the National Guard's standard issue weaponry. Okay. Uh, but what was seen on the news broadcasts was a much clearer story. You have images of uh, Bolivarian Circles members firing guns from the high ground, cut to people being wheeled into hospitals on bloody stretchers. The, yeah. the narrative... The narrative is crystal clear. Yeah. News anchors accuse the Chavistas of setting ambushes and firing into groups of, of unarmed protesters. Mm-hmm. And maybe they did. Yeah. But it was a chaotic scene to be sure, and that's certainly not all that happened, if it happened. Yeah. Chavez felt the need to take drastic action and wanted to implement something called Plan Avila. Okay. Avila is a military contingency plan made to control civil unrest and chaos in Caracas. There was civil unrest and chaos in Caracas. Mm-hmm. Now, it was first implemented in 1989 to suppress a riot, and its implementation led to hundreds of civilian deaths. Ooh. Just the, the name Plan Avila was a, a dirty word. It, it's frightening to even consider. Yeah. Uh, supporters claim it was a different Avila, a revised plan. Clearly, they've learned since then. Oh, change the name then. Then change, right? It's been 13 years. If you can change the plan, you can change the dang name. They also say that it had been implemented without any problems uh, in 1996 uh, uh, to provide crowd control when the Pope visited. That sounds like a very different type of crowd control. It, it does. It does. 
But regardless, it is still a plan to put civilians under military control, still tainted by that bloody memory, still not a good look for a guy being called a dictator or or by kinder members of the opposition, a would-be dictator. Some still provided a little benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So the officers charged with implementing the plan refused. The ones who, who stood up and said, well, now is the time for, for brave men to, to make the hard decisions and do what must be done, were prevented from implementing it by their superiors. One officer decreed that any uh, uh, moves had to be submitted to him by writing. So he made sure that nobody moved on anybody just by making things go the slowest way they could. <laughs> Yeah. Like you had to hand deliver this guy a written letter and he had to hand deliver back orders. He used red tape to prevent who knows what might have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sly move, I guess. Yeah. That's all right. It would have been even better if he was like, he had to put a stamp on it and mail it to me. (laughs) First class only. We're saving money here. So the threat of implementing Avila and news reporters saying that Chavez was ordering Bolivarian circles to open fire on citizens lost Chavez his military support. Because, like, the the ones that aren't in the room with him are watching the news to see what's happening. Yeah. That evening, a dozen military officers, including the heads of the Navy and Army, called for Chavez's resignation. Again, on live television. (laughs) They said that they had no plans to enact a coup, and that they were entirely motivated by the day's events. At 10.20 p.m., A National Guard general said on TV that Hugo Chavez had abandoned his office. The press refused to reach out to government officials for their side of the story, or they might have reported that that was a lie. Oh. Chavez had spent the night calling ambassadors to get help and to find someone willing to mediate and had never abandoned his office. Fidel Castro, on on his phone call, uh, convinced Chavez over the phone to turn himself in rather than kill himself. Oh. It is an option everyone facing a coup must make. Yeah. So that brings us to April 12th, the coup proper. In the middle of the night, after a, a negotiation, Chavez was taken into military custody, and they reported he had resigned. Again, this is not true. Mm-hmm. He considered resigning on several conditions, Uh, the condition that he would speak publicly, his family would be protected, and power would pass directly to the vice president as the constitution dictates. Yeah. Again, these coup plotters, uh, uh, this opposition, are cloaking themselves in the language of democracy to stand up to a dictator to protect this wonderful constitution that has overwhelming support. Mm -hmm. And they denied the request that that power be transferred according to that constitution, according to democratic process. Yeah. The plotters denied all those requests, sent generals to arrest him, threatened to bomb the palace if he didn't go, and then disseminated a forged resignation letter. Mm-hmm. So we need a president. Yeah. It's not going to be the vice president. No. It's going to be Pedro Carmona, the interim president. He was not a member of the military because it's not a coup. No. But uh, he was the former head of an oil company and then a head of Fedecameras. Ah. He he went from an oil company to uh, Fedecameras and then president for a bit. Uh, (laughs) He categorically denies involvement in any conspiracy. 
uh, says that someone called him up late uh, on the telephone and says, "We have you been watching the news? We need a new president. I think it should be you. He maintains this person's anonymity and says he, he accepted the presidency in, quote, a spontaneous act of bravery. Like, no. Someone just called me up and was like, yeah, I should be president. Like, cool. I mean, he, he was a well-known member of the public opposition. Yes, but still, like, someone just called me up and I was like, you know, I've never thought about that before, but that sounds like a nice thing to do. <laughs> now, the, the plotters did insist that anyone who took the interim position would be ineligible to run in the next election that they would set. So maybe he didn't really want it. There's a chance that a lot of people were like, yeah, I'll do it. Oh, wait, there's a catch. I don't like that catch. I want to do it for real. I'll wait. They're like, hey, you know, you want to add something to your resume? You can be president for like three months. <laughs> but you don't got to like do anything. So he had a very, very busy first day, regardless. I mean, first he, he renamed the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela back to the Republic of Venezuela. That name was another one of the many articles of the 99 Constitution, uh, adding the word Bolivarian into the, yeah. the country's official name. Uh, he cut off all oil sales to Cuba. He repealed all 49 decree laws, and he issued his own decree, the Carmona Decree. This is the one that was getting shown around on the 10th. Okay. Which means either he issued something that he didn't write, at least not in a significant capacity. Someone called him up really early. Or yes, he lied about not being involved in the advanced planning. Huh. Both are possible. Both are possible. Both aren't great. So the Carmona Decree reorganized the government by dissolving the National Assembly and the Supreme Court, by suspending the Attorney General, the Comptroller General, as well as all governors and all mayors electing during Chavez's administration. Oh boy. So, so again, this coup is justified. Its stated aim was to prevent a president from acting like a dictator and, and uh, uh, ignoring the rule of law. So this new guy is now ruling by decree, eliminating every part of the government but himself. Yeah. Institutions, gone. Rule of law, gone. There's just one guy and his council of 25 because you need somebody. It's a big country. Mm-hmm. Those 26 people replaced the entire government. Oh, dang. Of course, those 26 people didn't include any officers. Only th The only members of the military were, were two from the Navy. Oh. The opposition was this big coalition. Like, we mentioned a lot of people that didn't like Chavez for a lot of reasons. Everybody wanted a piece of the pie. He didn't give out enough pieces. No. So that right there is one of the reasons that his administration didn't really last an entire day. <laughs> they should have uh, had a longer phone conversation. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and be back with the rest of the story. <laughs> back once again hello so that's what was going on publicly outwardly with the, this brand new government but let's check in with hugo chavez sitting in a cell wondering what the heck comes next not good things probably 
I mean, where, where do you go from here, right? His supporters were still trying to, to strike a deal, calling up any embassy to see if they would take him and, and get him into foreign exile. I mean, once a president gets uh, taken into military custody, you have to think there's a ticking clock before he's executed. Yeah. Cuba doesn't sound so bad. You know, it's, it's lovely this time of year. When Chavez saw the news report that he had resigned, he began to worry he would be murdered in a staged suicide. Ooh. And found a way to get through to uh, the switchboard operators back at the, the presidential residence, Miraflores. Mm-hmm. They patched him through to his daughter, who got the word out that he had never resigned to Cuban television. Ah. The only people she called that would listen to her. Yeah. Chavez was questioned by two young military prosecutors. Uh, he insisted to them that he had never resigned. They faxed their statement on to the attorney general. Now, the attorney general, who was now suspended, tried to read the statement on Venezuelan TV, but they cut the mic before he got to the point. Oh. He told them he was going on the air to resign. Instead, he was actually going to share this news that Chavez hadn't resigned, and they, they cut his broadcast. They, they didn't let him say that. So you go on right away yelling, he didn't resign, he didn't resign! <laughs> the, the news still managed to get out to the point where hundreds of thousands gathered at Miraflores again, this time in support of Chavez demanding Carmona leave. Uh-huh. The plotters didn't know about one of Chavez's preparations, uh, one that I didn't mention either because it's such a good surprise. A squad of paratroopers housed in the basement. Oh! <laughs> it's so good. So, like, they pick up the phone, say, hello, new government, who dis? <laughs> and it's the commander of a squad of paratroopers saying, yeah, we're in the basement, we have guns. Please get out. Give us the real president back. You have 24 hours. <laughs> We're going to come out of the basement. <laughs> On the 13th, the presidential guard retook Miraflores. The plotters fled and escaped. And Vice President Diosdado Cabello took power until Chavez was located and returned. Mm -hmm. The news did not cover the retaking of Miraflores. One station showed uh, some films, including Lorenzo's Oil, of all things. Oh. Uh, one had some soap operas. The CNN-owned Globovision reran footage of the events of the 11th. Uh-huh. News that Chavez had not resigned and was returning spread by word of mouth instead. Uh, the CNN newsroom was reporting on the events to Americans, and reporters were shocked that the Venezuelan press wasn't. In fact, Globovision had called their parent company and asked them to join in the blackout instead of sharing what was actually happening today. This is why you can't trust the media. So state media, once Chavez was in charge of the state again, reported to the people that he had been reinstated as president at 8 p.m. on April 13th. So this coup failed for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, their uh, plan for a transition government exposed that their rhetoric was not what they were there for, uh, and the people saw through it. Mm -hmm. The fact that their entire claim of legitimacy, that the presidency was vacant, was a lie. And also that the people who wanted control of the government 
weren't happy with how little control they had over the government uh, put fractures in their their coalition. Yeah. They were unable to face the, the pendulum swing of the public, seeing they were duped, coming uh, back out for, for the guy that they liked a few months ago. Because now that they get a look at the other guys and, and what they would do, actually, we're not into that anymore. That's no, no. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll go back with the, the, the guy we know and, and not, not these fools. And so that coup further galvanized Chavez. There were clear and present enemies to rail against. We, we now knew their faces, knew their names, knew what they were willing to, to do and what lies they were willing to tell. That is a risk if your coup doesn't succeed. So much fodder for those broadcasts he loved to make. And yet another show of popular support swept him into power. Uh, so let's talk about some accomplishments of his post-coup presidency. In 2005, UNESCO said that Venezuela had il- had eradicated illiteracy. Huh. Uh, university enrollment went up two and a half times uh, in the span from the year 2000 to 2011. Because it's free. Because it's free. Yeah. <laughs> also, they built a lot of new universities just to to house all the people who wanted to, to, to attend. To go, yeah. yes. uh, The number of doctors per capita increased 400% in the same time. Because uh, now they could go to college. Which in turn cut infant mortality in half. Poverty fell by nearly half. Extreme poverty fell by more than half. Venezuela became the South American nation with the least inequality as measured by the Gini coefficient. One million hectares of land were returned to indigenous people. Three times that were returned to small farmers after being uh, uh, reappropriated from undeveloped land held by uh, wealthy estates. Uh, In 2013, Venezuela was the most advanced country in Latin America and the Caribbean in the eradication of hunger. Uh, The minimum wage rose by 2,000% during his presidency, while the proportion of the workforce relying on minimum wage fell from 65% of workers to only 21% of workers. Venezuela offered more direct support to the American continents than the United States did. In 2007, Chavez spent more than $8.8 billion in grants, loans, and energy aid against $3 billion from the Bush administration. That includes a program to provide cheap heating oil to New York City residents and rural, and rural Americans just to make President Bush mad. It's a good reason to do something. Honestly. He died in 2013 and was succeeded by his vice president, Nicolas Maduro, who has not been able to maintain the same trajectory. Maduro uh, won uh, his first election where he ran as president and his recent re-election, but in that time, oil revenues have fallen off, fallen off quite a good deal. Along with increased pressure from the U.S., Western Europe, other forces of global neoliberalism. There are shortages in Venezuela of a lot of goods, primarily goods that are produced by American companies. Mm -hmm. Venezuela does have difficulty paying its debts, uh, in large part due to the fact that foreign banks have frozen its assets. Mm -hmm. Maduro has refused to accept foreign aid from the U.S. and its allies, but has reached out for aid from Iran, Cuba, and other nations that are equally critical of United States imperialism. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. has insisted on putting its relief supplies on naval warships, just FYI. Yeah, you know, I'd be a little worried about those as well. 
So, like I mentioned, in the 2018 election, Maduro was re-elected with 67.8% of the vote. Pretty good margins. Yeah. Now, some opposition leaders were barred from running due to their arrests. Some entire parties boycotted the election. In the end, only 25% of voters turned out. Uh-huh. So a big margin of a small electorate. Yeah. Uh, on Maduro's inauguration day, uh, the president of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, called Maduro's presidency illegitimate for those reasons. Guaido's party is one that boycotted the election. Shouldn't they have gone then and voted for the other person? Yeah, if you want to say the election is illegitimate, you boycott. If you think you could win, you participate. At least that's what I would think, sitting sitting from here. Yeah. By the end of the month, the National Assembly had voted to declare Guaido the acting president. Uh, Mike Pence called him on the phone to congratulate him the night before. Uh-huh. Two days later, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo appointed a new United States special representative for Venezuela. You know who he got for the job? Oh, God. Elliot Abrams. That's why he was talking to Congress and got very upset at Representative Omar. Great. So currently, the U.S. and its allies recognize Guaido as Venezuela's president, while the United Nations... China, Russia, and many other nations continue to recognize Maduro as the legitimate president of Venezuela. We are in a crisis. We are witnessing a crisis in Venezuela. Yeah. Anything could happen. In the time between when I am saying these words and when you are listening to me say them, sometime Tuesday or later, anything could have happened. This could be out of date. Yeah. The point is to recognize that the information that you are given is incomplete, and there is a pattern here we have seen many times before. Yeah. There is plenty of coverage of military officers defecting from uh, uh, the army and and becoming pro-Guaido, and there was that military transport that ran over protesters. Uh Uh-huh. Practically no coverage once it came out that it was the anti-Maduro defectors who were driving the transport. There's plenty of coverage of the anti-war demonstrators squatting in the Venezuelan in the Venezuelan embassy to prevent Guaido's ambassador from getting in and, you know, doing ambassador things from the embassy. But not so much coverage that the pro-Guaido demonstrators outside included uh, members of the IMF and World Bank and executives from the arms industry. Yeah. The, these are the people calling for... Uh, code pink to to vacate the building. Goodness. If if I can editorialize a bit more, I would say the only ethical choice is to let the people of Venezuela determine their own future and to recognize that the pro-democracy rhetoric of the United States involvement is the same we've seen to mask regime change and cover for atrocities for decades, especially when Elliot Abrams has a job. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Like... That dude. That dude. <laughs> so, darling. Yeah. Take a minute to compose yourself. Okay. What have you learned? Well, I want to say that, like, oh, I learned to like dislike my country, <laughs> but I've ar- I've I've disliked it for a long time now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I know I knew about stuff going on now. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of all the the depth of the stuff going on. 
back in like 2002 and everything else because I was 14. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess if anything, and it's not, it's not, not new, but it's a reminder that like you can't just trust the one thing that you see mm-hmm. as being the truth. Certainly not the complete truth. Not the complete truth. Like, especially when it's dealing with governments mm-hmm. and governments that a lot of other governments are invested in. There, there is more context involved in everything you're seeing than you are saying. Yes. There is, there is history involved. There is a legacy. Yes. And no matter where it is or what it is, you, like, you really need to like be paying attention to what it's connected to mm-hmm. and where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Also... Thank you, Elliot Abrams. <laughs> I mean, if there's any lesson people take from this episode, it's Thank you, Elliot Abrams, to be sure. Yep. When I did my episode on, on the coup that reinstalled the Shah of Iran. Yes. That was secretly an episode about recent developments in Venezuela. Yeah. And now that I'm doing one about 17 years old developments in Venezuela, you turn on the news, I could be talking about present day Iran. Oh, yeah. It's a pattern. It is. There is a playbook, and it's easy to recognize the plays when they're being called again and again for decades. Yes. So I guess with that, we're going to take one last break. Okay. And come back with letters. Oh, boy. promise the episode's almost over there is no more learning unless we got some especially informative letters we probably did our first letter comes in from peter and he shares some non-us ice cream history margaret thatcher speaking of global neoliberalism she popped up in my ice cream research she I just didn't include her she worked with ice cream uh, when when she was employed by jay lyons the british food company Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But the prompt I asked for in this episode was I wanted to hear people's favorite mistake. And Peter's is the Darien scheme, uh, where the Kingdom of Scotland decided to to try their hand at this whole new world colonialism thing. Uh, They they tried to establish a colony called Caledonia on the Panamanian Isthmus. And so they would have control of like the gateway between Atlantic and Pacific for anyone who wanted to do a land trip because there wasn't a canal yet. Yeah. It didn't go well. In fact, it went so bad that uh, 20% of all of Scotland's wealth sort of went up in smoke, which in turn resulted in an economic crash, which is one of the main reasons that England and Scotland uh, joined into an official union for the first time, along with Wales and Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland giving us the uh, United Kingdom we know today. Yeah. So good job at being bad at colonies, because being good at colonies turns you into history's greatest monster. I'm looking at you, England. Hmm. Thanks, Peter. Uh, William writes in, uh, and shares that the popsicles we talked about 
mm-hmm. the tube ones, yes. do exist. Flavar Ice in America. Yes, do exist in Australia, and they have a much better name. They are called Zuper Dupers. There's also Otter Pops. There are two competing American ones. Oh, is it because you like hold them like a little otter? I think they just have little cartoon character mascots is all. Oh, you can see like otters like hold everything like right in front of them and you got to hold it and you got to like hold one with one hand, push it up with the other hand. (laughs) I could see that. Okay. William also shares that if anyone ever gets the chance to try Persian ice cream, they take it. They had the chance to try some uh, that had rose water in it and it was amazing. Telling you, rose water is good. The best way to eat ice cream is... A Sicilian ice cream sandwich, which is a brioche bun toasted with a scoop of gelato inside. Uh-huh. I'd eat it. Yes. Yes, I would. William also answers last episode's prompt of favorite snack, which is the light and tangy chips, which you are right. That is at least a flavor we don't have here. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> It's light and tangy. What else do you need to know? It's I don't know. Name. I want to know what what seasoning does that have? The light and tangy kind. I don't know what that is. I can't buy that in a bottle. <laughs> uh, William also uh, answers for favorite accident. The famous melting chocolate bar in the pocket of Percy Spencer that led to the creation of the microwave. Oh, well, thank you, William. Kevin has been uh, catching up on our show. Thank you very much, Kevin. And he has a few prompt responses saved up. Favorite snack is goldfish crackers. Well, yeah. That's a good choice. Uh, Favorite pie is an apple pie a la mood. And for the favorite origin story, Kevin wants to talk about something that I'm excited to read about. The 1979 Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, both an origin story presented in the fiction and some some production facts about its creation. So in the first episode, this kid Amaro gets in the cockpit of, of a giant, powerful military robot and sort of gets press-ganged into the military from there, and he gets PTSD and his whole life is messed up, and it's kind of a sad show. But the reason he's able to do it at all is because he, before he finds the robot, he finds the user manual and starts looking at it. <laughs> and that's brilliant. That is pretty brilliant. Like his first fight, there's a lot of stuff of him like getting punched by the other robot and going like, ah, oh, and he loses his page and has to like flip <laughs> with the book in his lap to figure out how to make the legs work. That's funny. It's so good. That's good. But for behind-the-scenes origin facts, uh, the lead animator overworked himself into the hospital mid-production. Oh, no. Uh, The show's ratings and merchandise sales were garbage initially. I think it was uh, canceled after episode four. Uh, But then another toy company came in and said, well, I see your problem. Your toys suck. We can do way better than that. Brought it back on the air with, like, fingers crossed and word of mouth got around and became a massive genre-defining hit. Yeah. Uh, also, the director allegedly punched one of the voice actors to help him get in character for a certain scene. I would love to know what scene that is. Yeah, that ain't allowed. Is, it would make sense if it's one of the times a character gets punched. But what if it was, like, one of the emotional punches? You need to feel pain! Real pain! (laughs) But Kevin also provides a picture of Big Dog Hank. Hank looks like a sweetie. Hank became a a model uh, on Kevin's recent uh, dog-sitting venue. 
Uh, because Kevin's also a recent uncle. Aww. Aww. So sweet. Congratulations to your family, and thanks for the letter. Bird writes in uh, and shares some dog pictures as well. Little dogs this time. Yeah. Little fluffy yeah. ones. Uh, and also uh, answers the favorite snack uh, prompt, but goes with favorite favorite frozen snack. Uh, <laughs> and that is a tie between uh, the citrus swirl at Disney World or the or basil strawberry flavors or any type of like herb fruit. At the fancy popsicle place. Yeah. Those sound like some pretty fancy popsicles. They do. Um, our grocery store sometimes has um, like a lemon basil gelato. Yeah, that's good. And for this prompt, a favorite mistake. Um, basically, anytime someone invents or discovers something on mistake, like post-it notes or slinkies, soft serve? Possibly. Yeah. There's a 50-50 shot. That was a mistake. Yeah. Thanks, Bird. Yeah. And thank you for the doggies. Claritic writes in, and her favorite mistake are ghost words, words that appear in important reference texts, dictionaries, for instance, but don't really refer to anything. It's the only place they exist. Uh, a lot of them show up as the result of mistakes in translation. Someone misreads a word, puts it in a reference text, and it just sort of gets left there. Uh, and who's to say that that's wrong because it's in the dictionary? Ma. Mm hmm So she provides the example of dord, a word that was printed as a meaning for density in the second edition of Webster's Dictionary in the 1930s. This was an editing mistake. There was an index card that read D or D, density, because density can be abbreviated by either capital D or lowercase d. Mm -hmm. But the person looking at these reference cards didn't note the spaces, I suppose, <laughs> and smooshed it together into Dord, defined as density. All right, <laughs> right in the dictionary you go. Amazing. Fantastic. Claritic also caught my uh, sly reference to the Australian practice of having sausage sizzles outside of polling places, which was timely as Australia did have their, their recent parliamentary election. Sausage sizzle is such a great term. It's so good. I want us to have sausage sizzles. Unfortunately, she does not know their history, but somebody out there has to. Come on, hit us up. We'll send it to Claritic, and then we'll all know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but speaking of mistakes, Australia's governmental system has a potential for a major one. Uh, its government is based on the Westminster system, based so heavily that it assumes that that system exists, except no part of that system is enshrined in Australia's laws. Mm. So one poorly worded decree or, or act of parliament, one really overreaching judicial uh, uh, decision, anything could happen. Australia's government could collapse like a house of cards because it's built on someone else's foundation. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, Whoops-a-daisy. Also, dear, you were you right that uh, the Portuguese chicken potato chips taste like Nando's. <gasps> I want them. We can just go to Nando's. But I want potato chips that also taste like Nando's for when I can't go to Nando's. I love you, dear. <laughs> Those would be amazing. Thanks, Claritic. Uh, so, Fohammer uh, writes in... Now, darling, you, you have not read this letter previously, have you? No, you told me I wasn't allowed to. I had to wait. 
So let, let's see what happens when Elena reads the best answer you're going to get for this listener question. That is the, the email uh, subject. Uh, subject line. Go for it, dear. I'm a longtime listener from way back when you did History of Chicago videos for Chip's Watchdogs LPs. Oh, thank you. But I've kept forgetting to answer this question for so long, but I'm finally sitting down and answering it. Who is my favorite kidnapper? My father! (laughs) What was that? What? Please continue, dear. Okay, he's not actually my favorite, but this is a great story! My father was apparently good friends with the the Haitian dictator Baby Doc. By the way, Papa Doc would be a good episode, not the least because he says he killed JFK. A lot of people say they killed JFK. Come on. Uh, and was head of the secret police. So his father was apparently good friends with the Haitian dictator and was head of the secret police. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, the Taunton Makut? I do not know French. I especially don't know Haitian French. Tauntin Macute. Let's go with that. Uh, their name translates to Uncle Knapsack, which is the Haitian cultural equivalent to the boogeyman. Needless to say, as part of his job, he had to do a lot of kidnapping and murders. After the Duvalier regime Duvalier regime ended, he fled to the U.S. where he met my mother, who wasn't aware of his past since she had been living in the U.S. during that time. He married her thinking she had lots of money, but when that turned out to be wrong, coupled with my birth, he divorced her and to this day still owes her child support payments. (laughs) And I want to thank you for making these great, informative, and entertaining podcasts. Thanks, Bohammer. I want to thank you for writing in and sharing this. I'm sorry to laugh, but <laughs> you kind of have to when you just read that for the first time. I have a feeling they also get some laughs out of it told to the right group in the right mood. It's that story when, like, you go somewhere and they're like, okay, tell us two truths and a lie. And you're yes. like, oh, I know what mine's going to be. And everyone's like, that's your lie. And you're like, no, that's it. That's the truth. Take that. Hi, Nora. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and you're the one that everyone remembers forever. (laughs) They will walk past you, never having like a class with you in college, never working with you or whatever, and be like, that's the person who said that story. Good luck getting that uh, child support. Don't ask where it came from. Do not ask what he had to do to get that. Wow. There's so many things in this letter, though, that I want to know more about. Thank you, Fohammer. <laughs> We're going to be thinking on that one for a while. And now it's Sam's job to follow that. Good luck, Sam. <laughs> Sam's favorite uh, mistake is is the externalities caused by Eli Whitney's cotton gin, a story that I think a, a lot of American history uh, uh, curriculums cover, uh, that cotton was not at nearly so profitable uh, in, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And there's a chance that slavery may have become financially unfeasible. Mm-hmm. The white supremacy that kept it propped up wouldn't really have gone away without legal slavery, but maybe slavery itself could have ended. Except that the, the invention of the cotton gin uh, reversed that trend and, and made slavery again very, very economically viable and profitable. 
Yeah. But at least your clothes are cheap. Thanks, Eli. <laughs> but for older prompts, Sam's favorite snack food is cheese curds. Yes. Oh, cheese curds are so good. But his 90-pound weight loss journey is, is le- has led him to, to look further abroad. And a whole lot of these uh, uh, healthier snacks, cinnamon-flavored. Yeah. Sam's down with the cinnamon. The cinnamon sickness. We have a friend that's allergic to cinnamon. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, I'm like, that'd be a really terrible allergy. <laughs> like, that's in everything. Sam's favorite playwright, uh, well, he's got a few friends that write their own plays, including his best friend's mother, who wrote Alice in Elderland, a, a coming-of-old-age story. Mm. When when you disqualify everyone Sam knows personally, you gotta fall back on, on Big Bill, Shakespeare himself. Uh, especially the fact that his women were fully-fledged and realistic, wholly realized characters. One of my favorite defenses for people who say that Marlowe was the real author of Shakespeare's plays is that Marlowe's women were just especially talkative furniture, while yeah. Shakespeare's women were people. Yeah. Yeah. And his favorite deadly disease, lupus, both for its sort of meme status on House MD, but also because Sam had a case of lupus. That's one way to have something stick in your mind, I guess. Uh, Back when he was 17, he got a bizarre wrist pain that would spread and develop. uh, And after testing, he was positive for lupus. It was actually drug-induced lupus. An incredibly rare uh, reaction to an acne medication. I was curious about that. I didn't think that was something you could just get for a while. Pretty sure you, like... That makes more sense. Drug-induced. Okay. He dropped, <laughs> he, he stopped taking it, and then the symptoms went away huh. practically immediately. That's crazy. So thanks, Sam. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. Uh, if you want to send us a letter, where can those go, dear? Podcast at gmail.com. And we want your show suggestions, your questions, your stories, uh, your corrections. Might have said that already. I'm going to say it again. Corrections. That's either two or three times as well as responses to our regular episode prompts. And again, those can go to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com Before we do our regular housekeeping, I would like to encourage everyone, uh, go check out Sex Archie. Riverdale just finished its third season, so we finished our third season's recaps. And also, the show is now streaming on Netflix in the United States, as All well as... seasons. As well as internationally. Uh, so if you're curious about the show, or if you've been waiting to see it yourself until you hear us talk about it, or you got people in your life who've been waiting for it to go on streaming and, and you want to uh, have us be your guide, now yeah. now's the time. Now's the time. It's a great show and we really love making it. Yeah. So, uh, now on to the normal business. Normal business! You should leave us a rating and review. Please, iTunes, we love it. Stitcher, wherever you listen. We love them and we read them. Yeah. They make us happy. You can also tell a friend we don't read that because that would be spying. That would be rude. It would be, be an invasion creepy. of privacy. A little creepy there. But we love it when it happens. Yeah. Uh, word of mouth is the only advertising we have. It is our greatest tool because... While we encourage people to help us uh, get above water in the world of uh, Apple Podcasts algorithms, we certainly don't trust them. Nope. 
while you're out there, you can get in touch with us and talk with us uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, and though you can find us at History Honeys. On all three of those platforms. Yes. I guess that's everything we got. I yeah. hope people enjoyed the show, and I hope they last long enough to hear Faux Hammer's uh, letter. <laughs> that is one for the record books. Ah, oh, talk about the best icebreaker to a conversation. Uh, so that should hold you over for another two weeks. Boy, oh boy. Uh, and with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.